midst of World War II, C.S. Lewis gave four radio broadcasts over the BBC, which would later be compiled into a book entitled Mere Christianity. This book inspired my journey to know why I believe what I believe. Welcome to Bear Christianity. The Jewish leaders were scandalized by Jesus, a man claiming to be God. In John 10.33, the Jewish leaders say, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. A man. At at times he was hungry and tired. He marveled at the faith of other people. He attended weddings and parties. He had a job as a carpenter. He wept and had compassion for those in need. He was a man, yet he was God, fully divine and fully human. I've discussed all this in previous episodes, but I wanted to remind you that the God of the universe works in his creation by working inside of history. He is holy and transcendent, yet God chooses to interact with his creation at our level. In a similar way, the Bible is both divine and human. It came together just like any other book. Authors wrote with pen and ink on animal skins, papyrus, and eventually paper. These men wrote what they wanted to write. They thought of all the words, just like you and I think when we write. They made mistakes, just like we made mistakes. Normal people wrote the books of the Bible, and a lot more people copied those books. Some had neat handwriting, and others had sloppy handwriting. Anyone who is able to read old manuscripts of biblical texts can see these errors, spelling changes, and corrections right there on the page. Yet, what does Peter tell us about the Bible? Second Peter one twenty one says, Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Spirit. And Second Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is God-breathed or inspired by God. And so anyone investigating biblical manuscripts has to deal with the fact that the manuscripts were written and copied by humans. Often, the assumption is made that God-inspired text wouldn't have any differences, no matter how minute. We want a booming voice from the sky to say, I am God, and here is the Bible. Then a glowing Bible floats down from heaven with all the books intact. Of course, I'm exaggerating this a little, but that was almost the idea. That's almost what I thought about the Bible as I grew up. The Bible is the infallible and inerrant Word of God. I heard that over and over and again. And I still believe that statement is true, by the way. I just have a, a different understanding of how the Bible came to be. Here's an outline for today's episode. I'm going to talk about the basic composition of the Old Testament. The Old Testament was written roughly a thousand years, and so I'm going to talk about some revising and updating and editing that is evident in, within the text of the Old Testament. And then also I'm going to discuss the basics of some of the manuscript evidence that we have for the Old Testament. You can always connect with me by email, bearchristianity at gmail.com. So please send emails if you have questions or just a comment. I enjoy reading all those. Um, you can connect with me on Instagram at the real bear martin. And then in case you didn't watch, the Braves won the World Series. I've talked about that in the last few episodes. So uh, that was a really fun night last Tuesday night. I watched the Braves clinch it. They won seven to nothing in the clincher, and uh, it was just super exciting. So, so um, I'm flying high as a Braves fan. I'm wearing my Braves hat everywhere I go, and uh, we'll see how it goes next year. Also, we have to to work on signing some key players. So, so hopefully, none of my favorite players end up leaving the Braves. We'll, we'll see how that works out. 
All right, for a special segment of the show, it's called A Bear in the Woods. This question today is from a listener, and here it is. Bear, salt and pepper are often put together, but does pepper actually matter? I don't really taste it, yet salt certainly enhances the flavor of my food. What do you think? Well, I agree here. It doesn't seem, pepper does not seem as important as salt. So they they kind of get put on the same level. You you almost never say salt without pepper. Um, it's, It's put together on pretty much every table in America. And so they they get treated kind of equally, but I would agree, salt seems to be way more important as far as the flavor of my food. I mean, often I don't put, I really don't put salt or pepper on anything. I just, you know, whatever the, the cook decides to put on there. I mean, occasionally I'll have to put some extra salt in there, but that is rare. I just rarely add anything to my food. But anyway, you know, they, they I guess they both enhance the flavor in certain ways, but but if I ever taste pepper, if I ever have to think about, oh, that's that's too peppery, it is just, I just don't like that food. But sometimes I'm like, wow, that's kind of really salty, but it's still really good. So so I'm with you. Um, I think salt is certainly the more important one. Now, my papa, that's my mom's dad. So, so my granddad would call him papa. He is really, really good. In fact, he used to inspect meats for the state of North Carolina. So he's really, really good at cooking steak. And that's one of his, I mean, his his basic thing is he just adds salt and pepper to it as far as seasoning steaks. And uh, and he was, I, I remember him telling me one time how important pepper is to that flavor. So it, it's doing something in there. It's doing something. Don't give up on pepper completely, but I agree with you. I'm, I'm a little confused as to its full purpose. Uh, also, this has always bothered me. Why do we have to pass them together? If you're at the dinner table and you say, can you please pass the salt? I remember this before and I just passed the salt. And then, you know, my, my mom would say, well, when someone asks you to pass the salt, you actually are supposed to pass the salt and the pepper. I mean, how lazy are we that we just ask for the salt and then everybody's supposed to know that we want the pepper too? Why can't you just ask for what you want? Anyway, just one of those little um, the, the, those little rules at the dinner table that, that uh, you have to follow. I've just always wondered why that's the case. Why, why can't you just ask for what you want? Sometimes put on salt, sometimes you put on pepper. If you want both of them, say, please pass the salt and the pepper. It's not that much extra effort. All right, that's just my opinion, and this has been A Bear in the Woods. Okay, for a lot of my listeners, this is this first part is probably going to be big-time review. But if you're like me, uh, sometimes I really jack up the timeline of the Bible. I have to stop and think, okay, around what time period is this going on? And so hopefully I can give you a few markers that will just help organize your thoughts as to the, the timeline of the Old Testament. Okay, so the Old Testament was written... Now, obviously, the Old Testament starts with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So so it covers, it's talking about creation up until about 400 years before Christ's birth. And so, like 400 BC. But it was written from around 1400 BC to 400 BC, right in there. Okay, we're just using rough estimate years. Okay, so 1400 to 400. So that's a thousand year period. Okay. It's a collection of 39 books, and this is often called the canon of the Old Testament, the canon. Canon 
is the word for a measuring rod or a stick. It is it's spelled C-A-N-O-N. There's not two N's there. We're not talking about a big gun. But the, the cannon is, is a measuring rod. And so it's a standard measurement. And if, and if so the book, if the, these 39 books that make up the Old Testament, if they uh, pass the standard, so to speak, then they are considered part of the canon. Now, this word canon is used for lots of other things, too. Uh, one of my buddies, he's a huge Star Wars fan, and he was telling me about Star Wars actually has a canon. So there are several books written that take place in the Star Wars universe, but only certain books are considered the canon of Star Wars. And so there you go. Canon is just kind of a standard, and, um, and so the Old Testament books make up the Old Testament canon. Now, the Hebrew Bible is only the Old Testament, because most Jews do not consider Jesus the true Messiah, so they disregard the New Testament completely. And so if you hear the phrase Hebrew Bible, that is actually just the Old Testament, whereas if, you know, most time when we just say Bible, like if I say, hey, I have my Bible here in my hand, that is that book is going to contain the Old Testament and the New Testament. All right. Now, the Hebrew Bible, are you with me so far? I'm throwing a lot of terms out there. The Hebrew Bible, that's just the Old Testament, okay, is also called the Tanakh, T-A-N-A-K-H, the Tanakh. And remember I said the Old Testament is 39 books? Well, the Tanakh is the Hebrew Bible, but it is only 24 books. Uh-oh. Oh, my goodness. Extra books. The Christians are adding extra books to the Old Testament. Well, not really. I was teasing you there. Um, you know, hope you, Hopefully you didn't swerve off the road, but not really. They are just organized differently. So the Tanakh is the, the Jewish version or the Hebrew Bible, and they just organize the books differently. And so one of the main things is the 12 minor prophets in my Bible are separate, are considered separate books, whereas in the Tanakh, they're, they're combined into one book. And so that's why my Bible, it, you know, it's 39 books in the Old Testament, and in the Tanakh, it's 24, but it's the same content. It's the same amount of stuff. It's just that they're organized differently. All right? Now, you may be thinking Tanakh is kind of a funny word. Where did that come from? It's actually an abbreviation uh, with, with three letters. In Hebrew, so T N K. All right, Tanakh. T stands for Torah, which is the first five books of the Old Testament. It means, and Torah means instruction or guidance. But it's often it's kind of um, become the word law. And so when you hear the law or the law of Moses or the book of the law, the book of Moses, all of that is talking about the first five books of the Bible, and it's called the Torah. Now, the next one, because Tanakh is T, N, and K, the N is Nevi'im, and that means prophets. And it consists of books like Joshua, Judges, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and most of the books in the Old Testament that are named after Israel's prophets, like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. And this is where those 12 minor prophets, now we call them minor, not because they're any less important, just their books are, are smaller. And so the, the 12 minor prophets are, are all included in that. And then the last one, the K, stands for Ketuvim, and that means writings. So the Torah is the law, the Nevi'im is the prophets, and the Ketuvim is the writings. And the, the main portion of the writings includes Psalms and then other wisdom books of the Old Testament. It also includes the uh, Daniel, 
Ezra, Nehemiah, and then it ends with a summary of much of Israel's history in First and Second Chronicles. And so in, in my Bible, First and Second Chronicles comes pretty early on. It's First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, you know, it just keeps on going. So Second Chronicles would be sort of towards the front part of my Old Testament. Whereas in the Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh, it ends with Second Chronicles. And this helps us understand a saying of Jesus. So in Luke 11, Jesus is condemning the Jewish leaders of, of the day for rejecting him and says that they are guilty of rejecting a true prophet of God, just like their ancestors rejected the former prophets. So Jesus says this in Luke eleven fifty through 51. The blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. So when Jesus says, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, he is talking about the first man killed who was worshiping the true God. That's Abel. Cain killed Abel in Genesis, okay, the first murder ever. And then Jesus ends with the last prophet mentioned in the Tanakh. Remember, Second Chronicles is the last book of the Tanakh in, in the order that they order them. And so Zechariah is killed, and he's the last prophet that's killed. And so Jesus is basically spanning the whole Old Testament. He says, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. So it's a way of saying throughout the whole Old Testament, Israel has rejected the prophets sent by God, and then Jesus is saying, you're doing the same thing in rejecting me. Now, the Tanakh is often referred to as the law and the prophets. So yes, it is made up of three sections, but oftentimes in the New Testament, when, when Jesus or other people are saying the law and the prophets, they're talking about the, the, the Jewish Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. So just a, uh, an example in Matthew 22, when Jesus is asked about the greatest commandment, Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. I've mentioned this verse several times before. And then he follows that up with, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Okay. In Luke 24, Jesus has been raised from the dead. So this is, this is just after his resurrection, and he is speaking to his disciples. He appears before them, and he says, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And so one of the, if I had a time machine and I could go back in time and just sit in on a conversation, we have some stories in the Bible after Jesus is resurrected, where he sits down and basically explains the Old Testament to the disciples and just kind of says, look, see, this is this is pointing to me. This is pointing to me. That, that symbol there, that is pointing to me. I am fulfilling all of this. I would love to sit in on that conversation and see how Jesus explained the Old Testament. But here he calls it the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. Remember I said the Psalms make up the, the largest portion of the writings, that, that third part of the Tanakh. So the law and the prophets or the law, the prophets and the writings, that those are all ways of saying the Old Testament. Now, one extra note real quick, the Catholic Bible does contain some extra books. And these were written, these extra books were written during the 400 years leading up to the birth of Christ. So just to summarize, the Old Testament, Moses started writing the Old Testament around 1400. 
and it kind of wraps up. The last books are written around 400. And then between 400 to the time of Christ, there are some other books that are written that are uh, talking about the Jewish history. There's some theological concepts in there as well. And so these are called, by, by Protestants like me, these are called the Apocrypha, which means hidden away, because many Protestants, or, or all Protestants, and Jews doubt the content of these apocryphal books, these extra books. They doubt that they're equal to that of sacred scripture. Whereas Catholics and like the Eastern Orthodox Church, they do include them as part of their scripture. And so a lot more on this when I do a series on Catholicism versus Protestantism. But those are called the Apocrypha, or Catholics call them the Deuterocanonicals, which means secondary canon. All right? Now, so that's kind of the basics of the Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh, the Old Testament. Okay? Now, the Old Testament was written over a thousand years. I said that earlier. Now, this is very different from the New Testament. The New Testament was written over just a period of about 60 years. And so that, that's, there's a big difference between those in, in how the New Testament came together and how the Old Testament came together. I mean, think about that. A thousand years, for us, that would be a collection of books that was, that was started by someone like the Duke of Normandy in the Middle Ages and finished up by someone like Billy Graham. You know, that is a lot of time in history. And think about how language has changed. Just, I mean, just over the last hundred years, think about how language changes. Um, also, over a thousand years, I mean, there are new inventions, n- cities, it, new countries even. There are new cultures which mix and form new vocabulary. Prominent figures rise in popularity, but only for a certain amount of time, you know? So today, when people speak of Joe Biden or Donald Trump, you know, everyone knows about them. But a hundred years ago, the name Donald Trump meant nothing. You know, so when we say things like, uh, I walked from D.C. to L.A., we know exactly what that means. That It's a cross-country course, a cross-country of America. Now, if we could talk to Lewis and Clark, what references would they use? How would they describe their journey, you know, across most of the country? So this this happens in my own lifetime even. You know, we use different landmarks to communicate. So as a kid, I could tell most people in the area around me that my house was a few miles away from fat boys. So <laughs> so fat boys, I'm from Willow Springs, North Carolina, but fat boys was a store at the corner of Old Stage Road and 42 Highway. And they had everything there. They had clothes, pools, food, and my favorite, they had cap guns. I remember getting a lot of cap guns there. Uh, and everybody knew about fat boys. It was just one of those, those country stores and everybody knew about it. And it didn't even say that on the sign. I don't even think it said Fat Boys. It said it was technically called Olives, but uh, you know all the locals just called it Fat Boys. Um, and the the guy that owned it was rather large, and and uh, so Fat Boys. There you go. Uh, so anyway, you know, there's there's lots of different landmarks. I mean, now if I said, oh, you know, I grew up near Fat Boys, most people that aren't from this area wouldn't know where that is. And so this happens. So let's go back. Let's let's. Take that idea and put it back in the Old Testament. So over a thousand years, the writings had to be updated so that its readers understood the meaning. Now, I believe these updates were also inspired by God until we have this, uh, what would be considered the final form of the Old Testament. And that happens around 200 BC. And so I'm not really going out on any kind of a limb here. This is the view of many Christian Old Testament scholars. 
And so I will link a free article which covers this in a lot more detail, this sort of view about the inspired Old Testament, um, yet also it has to be updated over this thousand-year period that, it, that it's being written. So hopefully you don't think I'm going crazy or that I'm trying to somehow get away from the infallibility of the Bible or the inerrancy of Scripture. I believe in all of that. All I'm saying is, if we just look at the Bible itself, it has marks of updates and revisions. It's just, it's just part of the text. You can't get around it. And so let me give you a few examples just to show you what I'm talking about. And again, just to be clear, I believe the original authors of these Old Testament books spoke from God as they were carried along by the Spirit, just as Second Peter one twenty one says. But again, the words in the Old Testament point to additions and revisions. They, they clarify, they add important details, and so it helps the reader make connections to other parts of the Bible. Here's some examples. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. Again, that's the Torah, and sometimes it's called the Law of Moses or the Books of Moses. It's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. But the last chapter of the last book is a chapter which includes the death of Moses and the passing of the torch, so to speak, to Joshua. So obviously, Moses did not write down his own death. Yet as a Christian, I don't place this chapter as being something outside of the words of God or Holy Scripture. You know, I'm not like, well, Moses wrote the Torah, and obviously Moses didn't write that, so we, get, we need to kick that out of here. No, it's, it's part of the law of Moses, but we, we realize that someone else wrote it. Maybe it was Joshua. Maybe another prophet of Israel wrote this as a, a conclusion to the writings of Moses. We don't know, but all we know is that there is evidence that someone just kind of tacked this part on to the end of the writings of Moses. Another example is the likely updating of location names. So in Genesis 14, 14, this is a verse in the middle of a story of Abraham rescuing his nephew, Lot. So Lot has been taken captive, and, and Abraham is pursuing him. And, and Genesis 14 tells us that Abram pursues these captors as far as Dan, D-A-N, Dan. Now, this location known as Dan was likely not named that until after the time of Moses. And so archaeological evidence shows us it used to be named Laish or Leshem in some translations, and it was named that before it was conquered by the tribe of Dan. And this conquering took place after the death of Moses, so it likely was not called Dan. And so Moses probably wrote, the old name, Laish or Leshem, and then someone later came in and, and realizing what it was, just put Dan there so that the readers would know what, what in the world he's talking about. Because Dan became the better known name for that region. And so the phrase from Dan to Beersheba is found several times in the Old Testament, actually, and it's used to denote the full vertical length of the promised land uh, of the nation of Israel. So I gave an example earlier of, uh, you know, walking from D.C. to L.A., and so we know what that means. It's, it's a cross-country trek. The same thing here, from Dan to Beersheba is a vertical. Dan is the, the uppermost, northernmost point of the nation of Israel, and Beersheba is kind of on the southern border. And so this, this phrase, from Dan to Beersheba, became a, a common way of stating all of Israel. And so this was likely an update. And, and it's, it's not an error. It's not someone going in and trying to add to uh, the words of Moses and change them in any way. It is simply an update for future readers. 
And so my personal opinion is that God inspired these prophets who were going along and revising and updating the scriptures over a thousand year period, that they were also inspired of God. That's that's kind of the main point of what I'm trying to, to uh, get across. A final example of possible editing is the introduction to Ezekiel. And so you'll you know, as you're reading, you may come across little things like this, and so hopefully it helps you if, if you have any questions about this. So let me read the first four verses of Ezekiel. In the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the exiles by the Kebar Canal, the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. On the fifth day of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiachin, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzai, in the land of the Chaldeans by the Kebar Canal, and the hand of the Lord was upon him there. And then it goes on, as I looked. And so notice what happens here. It, it's like first person, and then it jumps to third person and gives a few extra dates about uh, what king was in charge. This is the fifth year of the exile of the king of Jehoiachin. So it's it's giving a few other details, and it's third person talking about the Lord came to Ezekiel, and then it jumps back into a firsthand account of Ezekiel, and so it you know at this switching from first person to third person is a clue here that this is likely just a little addition that just gives a little extra information to the reader. So anybody who is not just burying their head in the sand has to admit that there are signs in the Old Testament scripture itself, that there has been some editing or updating along the way. However, this does not take away from the truthfulness of its content. And I've discussed some of these issues because I was not aware of them as I, until I started researching this for myself. I wanted to know, okay, why do we believe the Old Testament is actually what Moses wrote, for instance, or, or actually what God wants us to have, or actually it's the Word of God, Okay. So when I started researching that, I realized, okay, this is not, it's not as, honestly, it's not as clean cut as I thought it was. And so if you're like me and you kind of have the false idea that the Bible floated down from heaven or that Moses wrote some things down and Ezekiel wrote some things down and Isaiah and so on, you know, all the different authors, they wrote these things down and then they were like sealed in some kind of vault and nobody touched them. And now we, we can go back and look at those exact, you know, the exact papyrus or animal skin that they wrote on, that's that's just the wrong idea, honestly. It's just it, we don't have those writings. And so for some people, this knowledge really shakes them. They, they feel like God is not preserving the Bible the way that they feel God should. You know, they, they feel like, okay, if the Bible is the inspired Word of God, then there should be zero differences ever in any manuscript. It, you know, God should just be uh, basically forcing people who copy, you know, the, these uh, these manuscripts over the course of history, he should just force them into some sort of trance where they never make any errors and they all, you know, say exactly the same thing. And that's just not the way God chose to preserve his word. And so, you know, a lot of times when we have difficulties with the Christian faith, it's it's simply because God doesn't do things the way we want him to do them or the way we think he should do them. And so you've got to wrestle with that. But it doesn't take away from the word of it doesn't take away from the reliability of the Old Testament. God has preserved his word just in a different way than maybe what you'd expect him to preserve it. 
So there we have it, a thousand years to write and sort of edit and update the Old Testament. And then it sort of reaches its final form. The final form of the Tanakh was wrapped up roughly around 200 BC. And again, I'm not an expert in this field at all. This is just based on reading different scholars and and things in, in that field. And so the Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh was complete and nothing else was added to it. Now, one other thing in happened in 356 BC, and that was that Alexander the Great was born. In his short life, he conquered most of the known world, and and Greek became the common language of the world. And around 200 BC, some Jewish scholars translated the Tanakh, the Hebrew Old Testament, written in Hebrew. They translated it from Hebrew to Greek. This group of scholars, it was actually 72 men, but they became known as the Seventy, which is translated as Septuagint. So the Septuagint is one of the most important translations of the Bible in the history of mankind, and we're going to get into a lot of that later. But the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And so, and then later editions of the Septuagint also include the apocryphal books as well. And, and there are some differences between the Tanakh and the Septuagint. So This is interesting stuff, but more on this, again, in later episodes. The last part of my outline that I wanted to cover today is just manuscript evidence for the Old Testament. So I speak English, y español un poquito. That means, and Spanish, a little. (laughs) I I actually don't know much Spanish. I know enough to to do an eye exam in Spanish. And so um, sometimes when patients will come in, and they only speak Spanish, I'll throw out a few little phrases uh, that I know uh, just about the eye exam, and then they assume that I just speak Spanish fluently, and then they just start <laughs> then they just start going, and then I have to say, whoa, 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 wait, 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 wait. All I, do is, all I know how to do is say, you know, tell me what is better, one or two, in Spanish. That's, that's about the extent of it. Anyway, I speak English, okay? That's, that's my native language. And so my Bible is a translation from the original languages of the Bible. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew, There's a few passages that are in Aramaic, and then the New Testament was written in Greek. But did the translation team have the original copies of all of the books of the Tanakh as well as the books of the New Testament? No, not even close. And so for the Old Testament before 1947, the two closest Hebrew manuscripts for the Old Testament were the Leningrad Codex, and that was written around 1008 A.D. A.D., not B.C., A.D. And then the Aleppo Codex was written 920 A.D. And so if Moses wrote starting in 1400 B.C., then the closest evidence we had was over 2,000 years from the original, from when the original was written. That's a long time. And so most of the Hebrew manuscripts we had before 1947 are what's called Masoretic text, the Masoretic text. Now, the Masoretes were a select group of Jewish scribes, and they were responsible for for carefully copying the Tanakh. And they were prominent around 500 to 900 AD. And so they made these copies of the Tanakh that were, uh, this, this was their job. And so these copies are usually pretty reliable as far as they, they didn't make many errors. And also as an ancient language, the pronunciation of words as well as the way Hebrew was written changed over time. Again, it was a, you know, a thousand-year period that this is being written. And so the Masoretes preserved a certain way of pronouncing the words. Believe it or not, 
early forms of Hebrew did not have any vowels. It was consonants only. And so the Masoretes placed these, placed these certain vowel markings to sort of standardize the pronunciation of words. And in general, again, these Masoretic manuscripts are reliable, and they don't really contain any significant differences in the copies. I mean, sure, there are some errors, but um, it, it's basically the same words you know, for, for each of the copies, and they're, they're pretty reliable. But were they consistent with the Old Testament as Jesus knew it? That's the important question. And so if, if the earliest one we have is like 900 years after Jesus lived, then how could we know that we actually have the Old Testament that Jesus knew? And you know that's the big question. And in 1947, that all changed. And the story goes like this. A shepherd boy uh, near the Dead Sea was trying to like scare some goats or a goat out of a cave that they kind of wandered up in the cave. And so he's throwing rocks into the opening of a cave and trying to scare the goat back out. And when when he threw some rocks in there, he heard what sounded like pottery shattering. And so the so he gets some buddies and they go back and they they go into this cave and they find some old scrolls. And it took a while, but eventually they were able to sell them for not a whole lot of money. But archaeologists eventually came across these these scrolls and realized this is probably the oldest scrolls that had ever that that we have. And so they started an extensive search and excavating the, the surrounding caves, and this has given us one of the greatest discoveries of all time. So next week's episode will be all about the significance of this discovery, and these have become known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. So in closing, I want to tie a few things together for you. So the Old Testament took 1,000 years to compile. It, its form is finalized. But for 400 years leading up to Christ, so from 400 B.C. to Christ's birth, Israel did not hear from God. There was not an active prophet speaking from God. The Tanakh speaks of a coming Messiah who will restore the nation of Israel. So this, this is all building. Daniel, a great prophet of the Old Testament, even gave prophecies of a timeline for the coming of the Messiah. The, the Jewish people were expecting this Messiah. Alexander the Great had conquered the known world, and the Greek culture and language had spread. And so this led to the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So the the Old Testament is now in the common language of the world. The Romans conquered the Greeks, and the Romans built highways. You know, have you ever heard the, the phrase, all roads lead to Rome? The Romans, you know, built all these highways. So now travel is going to be easier throughout the known world. And then around the time of Jesus' birth, a Jewish sect in Qumran near the Dead Sea, these are the people who began storing these scrolls in these caves for some reason. The stage is set. God is always working. You know, people in that time, they were just doing what normal people do, yet God was working and bringing all of this together. All of it comes down to the perfect timing. And here's our closing verse, Galatians 4, 4 through 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. 